Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Michelle Norris is a Peabody Award-winning journalist. She's the founder of the Race Card Project and executive director of The Bridge, the Aspen Institute's new program on race, identity, connectivity, and inclusion. And of course, you know her from her stellar career at NPR. Very, very glad to have Michelle Norris on the show today. Michelle, welcome to the Atlantic interview. It's good to be with you, Jeff. It's always good to be with you. You're just saying that. I'm not just saying no, that. No, you're just saying that, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, I want to jump right in to – I mean we've been, we've been having a, a continuing conversation about race in America. Oftentimes, we spend a lot of time talking about African Americans and the condition of the African American community and the politics of African American community. Let's talk about white people, all right? You okay with talking about I'm white totally people? I'm totally okay with talking about um, white And let's, let's start with the piece that you just wrote for another magazine, which just – Whatever. I can't even deal with that fact that you're writing in another magazine. But it's a magazine with a big yellow border, and it used to um, exoticize uh, people of color. Uh, I won't get, I won't tell you the name. Um, I will tell you the name. Yeah. It's National Geographic. <laughs> I think people got they, that. They, they did what a magazine? special <laughs> issue on race, top to bottom, front to back. The entire issue looks at several um, threads, tendrils. Tendrils? Uh, issues. <laughs> Only a word journalist would use, tendrils. <laughs> that examine tributaries. All I want to say is that The Atlantic has been doing that for 161 <laughs> years, but we're going to move on from my personal resentments to a larger discussion of, of, of race in America. Tell me about this fascinating piece and, and actually the fascinating reporting that went into the piece and we could jump off from there. Well, because Nagio was doing this entire issue on race, um, they wanted to look at White America and the conversation, the issue of race in white America. And it's interesting because we're at a point where conversations about race are more inclusive of white America than they've been in the past. For a long time, if you were going to have a conversation about race, if you're going to have a program about race, the expectation is that it would be by, for, about people of color. And attended almost exclusively and, by. Attended <laughs> almost exclusively by people of color. And the notion is that white whiteness is or was the cultural default and every other group that orbited around whiteness was otherized in some sense or in, in many cases problematized. So race was the problem of people of color and white America had um, almost like a bystander status. Right. And there are all kinds – This is classic though with prejudices, right? I mean home- – homophobia is not thought of – it's thought of as a problem for gays when it's actually not a problem that comes out of the gay community. It's a problem of other people. And anti-Semitism is the same thing. The problem is with the anti-Semites. It's not right, with – and, and, and what you're saying and, and, in race is the same and, and for, thing. That's true for racism. Right. It's also just true for race. You know, the notion that when you go to the doctor, when you go to the DMV, if you are white, you are not excluded from checking a box. You too check a box. You're yeah. You're raced. In right. some way, and and using race as a verb there, um, as as Toni Morrison would do, 
but the notion now that 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 whiteness is something that is being placed under a microscope, that white Americans are, and I'm not, you know, I, I did this based on reporting. The reason I was able to do this story is because I run a project. I run something called the Race Card Project. So I spent the last eight years listening to people of all colors talk about race, including white Americans. So it's not like I just dipped in and decided to, to no, write you've been this listening. story. For, you've been listening to high. white people. Um, you've been listening to the id of a lot of different people for years. And, and so I felt card. like I could I could do this piece without it sounding like I was, you know, just kind of landing in, um, um, dipping into whiteness to, to write the story because I had been really listening to people. And there's all kinds of evidence in the conversations that I've had and the stories that people share with me on the Race Card Project, but also just in, in America. And I would say globally where um, white people are responding to their cohort status. You see that with nationalism. Mm-hmm. flaring up all across the globe. You will not replace us. You will not replace us, which is interesting. You know, I write about this in the piece. Um, you will, you not, will not replace us is the Charlottesville mantra, if people recall. Right. People who, um, white Americans, um, marching in Charlottesville where they the city had removed, um, was in the process of removing Confederate monuments, marching with tiki torches, chanting, you will not replace us. For a lot of people, they will remember that weekend in the summer as the moment where um, white nationalism came out of the shadows. The people who were marching were not wearing hoods. Mm. Um, they were affiliating with white supremacist groups, in some cases with Nazis. And they were wearing polo shirts and khakis and looking like someone you might see at the mall or at a Dave Matthews concert or maybe <laughs> I, I maybe aged myself there, maybe Arcade Fire or something like that. Um, I think you might still be aging yourself. But all right. Okay. okay. <laughs> you know, they, they didn't – they were not hiding at right. all. Um, and it was – in fact, it was a social media moment for many yeah. of them. And some were – later faced a program when people – found out who they were and it was yeah. reported they lost jobs and whatnot. But but that chant, that menacing chant, you will not replace us, on the whole, people um, across the spectrum, political spectrum, socioeconomic spectrum, racial spectrum, denounced what happened in Charlottesville. And not just because Heather Heyer lost her life, not just because it created, you know, it sparked a wave of violence in the city, but because it represented um, something that most Americans don't accept, the notion that people would march in favor of white supremacy. So that chant, you will not replace us, was attached to something that most people disdained. And yet, you will not replace us. The, the, The core sentiment in that statement is something that people in private spaces actually talk about it's a deep anxiety it's a deep anxiety and it's it's it you see it in sports you see it in politics mm. you see it in economics you see it in a country that is changing where the demographics of this country are changing where social norms have changed such that people have access to jobs that weren't available to them have access to neighborhoods that weren't available to them where we talk about equality in a different way than we did even within my lifetime and I am not that old um, that there is a fear that a way of life and a certain kind of provenance is slipping away and we don't is it a fear of sharing or is it a fear of something more than sharing you know it it's it's you have having to, to share. And I'm I'm careful to talk about this because it it means different things to many people. I don't think that there's one explanation. I can share with you what people have shared with me. Um, there's someone that I spent time talking in the piece. He's a he's a 
a professor in North Carolina, and he wrote into the Race Card Project um, just to help people understand. I run a project. It's called the Race Card Project. People send in six-word stories, and they often send in the backstories and their photos and artifacts that explain their six words. Right. And I, I don't want to misquote his six words, but he basically says, I now understand the wasps. Mm. And he wrote a, you know, an eloquent, interesting essay attached to his six words. And in his six words, he said he was writing about watching his family. Um, they came from Eastern Europe. They came to America. They aspired to become all-American. Um, they came to America at a time where people who came from that part of Europe were sort of American with an asterisk. They were, you know, like a special category of of um, white American, I should say. Right. And as they sort a of lesser category moved and matriculated into a society, um, he said he understands now how perhaps the wasps wasps mm -hmm. felt when they joined their clubs and went to their colleges and moved into their neighborhoods. And he used JFK as an example, America's first Catholic president. And he says, you know, the same thing is happening now again. And for a white man in America, it doesn't always feel good to him because he was honest about what he fears. And, it, and it's on a lot of different levels. He teaches um, English literature. And he says that may not be as important to a lot of people in the future. And mm -hmm. yet he's, he's you know, it's it's always complex. You know, he's someone who bell hooks will will float off, you know, roll off his tongue. He's um, He studied African-American literature. He teaches that in his class too. He he embraces that. But he, he also understands that for a long time, the pact, the American pact, sort of that idea of the American dream meant that some people had a little bit of an easy pass. If you're a commuter, you understand what I mean, that little white box that you mm -hmm. put on the front of your dashboard and you don't have to go through the toll booth. You just zoom, you skate right through. And he feels like that's changing. And if you really want a world where, where equality is not just talked about but practiced, it means that he may not be on easy street in the way that he was before. And yet he understands that that's necessary, that he that that's what he really wants, but he's right. being honest about what that means. Before we get to the story, Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and what you found when you went there, answer this question for do the people you've talked to. So here here's the here's the, the premise. White males make up twenty five or thirty percent or so of the adult population of the United States. Mm -hmm. It makes sense that over time all these different groups, male, female, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, uh, gain representation in, in, in leadership across government and business and, and everywhere else um, in more or less proportion to their, to their level in the population, right? Americans think of themselves as, generally speaking, as people who understand fairness. People don't like unfairness, at least in theory. Mm -hmm. So when you explain to white people white males in particular, that, hey, we're not talking about a revolution that's going to end up with you, you know, in the guillotine. We're just talking about sharing some of the things that white males have traditionally held for themselves, which is to say leadership in government, leadership in corporate America, leadership at the top levels of universities, et cetera. Do they understand that theoretically, the people you talk to intellectually, but but they can't get it emotionally? What is the, you know, you know what I mean? The, the, the logic of that to me is overwhelming. Right, fair, equal. Everybody has equal access. the 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 leadership should represent what the country looks like, more or less. 
You know, people are complex. Yes, they understand that. Yes, I'll just I'll I'll, I'll quote um, Professor Glover. Um, he says that a lot. It means that a lot of people, this notion of equality uh, and the changing, you know, America. He says it, it. It means that a lot of people are just going to lose materially, and are already losing materially. I can somehow feel more virtuous, he says, because it was necessarily built on equality. I just don't know if that really keeps people warm at night, knowing that there's equality out there. I think they'd rather have privilege. And because he's the natural honest. human state now, is... And, 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 you know, before people jump down his throat, mm-hmm. I actually give him credit for being honest. It may you, – you, you may – what he says may be repulsive to you, but he's putting something on the table that you know um, a lot of people perhaps express – in, in the quiet of their home or at the kitchen table. And and yet this notion of equality and fairness, we're in America. So, you know, let's remember that white supremacy was built into every law, every custom, every bit of America's fabric from the very beginning. So the notion that this is the, the land of the free and the home of the brave, that's true, yes. But we have not always lived up to the standards that we put on paper in our Declaration of Independence, in our Constitution, in our sort of credo right. that we've tried to live up to. We have not made that real in our actions and in our laws and in our customs. Go to go to the piece. Go to Hazleton. What did you find? Well, I found a community that, that changed rapidly. And Hazleton has been under a, a, a spotlight and some would say a harsh spotlight for some time because it was the center of an anti-immigration debate um, sparked by a law that, that, you know, moved up to the high court. um, And it was in response to rapidly changing demographics in the area. Uh, There was an attempt to pass a a law that would impose fairly stiff penalties for someone who hired or um, provided housing to someone who was found to be illegal. The community is um, near the top of the 80s, where 80 and 81 meet in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. It is a former coal mining community. It, it produced a very specific kind of coal that's very hard, and so it was highly sought after. So waves of immigrants moved to Hazleton and found steady work and created um, fiefdoms throughout the area, much like you see in, in several coal mining communities or in cities like Chicago and Detroit. So you had people who had moved there from Germany, from Ireland, from um, Italy, from Slovakia, Slovenia, Montenegro. There's, there, you know, there, there's and they this stick to their own kind. Well, they, you know, they, they, they stick to their own kind perhaps when they first get there. But interesting, you know, immigration patterns. As they came, they eventually became seen as white Americans. Mm. And so some of those divisions were still there, but they kind of faded away. They were not as, as brightly um, uh, defined as they were when they first arrived. The maybe the tension or the division between the Irish and the Italians. Um, you know, there were religious divisions, but they, you don't see them quite so much. Now you see the the divisions are more apparent in part because the new immigrants that are moving to the area are largely Latino. The mines closed, the manufacturing center closed, and a lot of those factories closed. And the jobs that replaced the factories that went away were primarily light manufacturing, food processing, warehousing. So Amazon has a huge distribution center there. American Eagle Cargill mm-hmm. um, has a big meatpacking plant there. And large numbers of Latinos started to move to the area to fill those jobs because Hazleton was um, was a dying community. It, it aging was out. aging out. And so there was an effort 
to actually bring in new jobs. They needed employees for those new jobs. Many of those employees wound up coming from New York and New Jersey. They largely um, were originally, you know, their lineage originally traced back to either uh, the Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico. And the demographics of the community changed rapidly. Sixteen years ago, Hazleton was almost 97 percent white. It's now about 44, 45 percent white. So rapid change in a very short period of time. And the town has gone through a certain amount of vertigo about that. Not everyone is comfortable with that. And there has been a debate about what this means for the town. And yet the town's economic vitality is largely based on this new Right. These newcomers that have come to town and taken jobs and, you know, are now the, they're buying homes, they're buying cars, they're raising right. families. They're well, we know this from opening uh, churches again that well, have been closed. We know this from uh, numerous studies show that those parts of the country that are worse off economically mm-hmm. are the most homogenized. They have the fewest number of immigrants because we all know anecdotally and uh, experientially that uh, – Immigrant communities bring an enormous amount of vitality and restless energy and its and economic development uh, with them. But you're saying that the whites of Hazleton have not adjusted to that. I'm saying that. some whites. I'm always careful. You know, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. Some, okay. I'll, some, paint, I'll paint with a broad brush. Um, be careful about doing that. You I'm get in joking. trouble when you do that. You, know? I, you get in trouble when you do anything these days. So. Um, but but I, I am particularly careful about doing that. I think that you you know. Tell me about the white. On... Tell me about the whites who have problems <laughs> yeah, with that. How yeah. about that? The, the the people that I talk to who do have problems with it, in some cases, it's based on actual experience. Something has happened to them. Mm. Um, their neighborhood has changed. Crime is a big issue. I mean, a lot of this, I, I talked to a professor who's done some really interesting work. He's from Hazleton. He's now an associate professor at John Jay College okay. in New York. But he's done a lot of uh, research on Hazleton, and, and, and he writes about this Latino threat narrative and how there is this um, – this, this anxiety that sort of feeds into the Latino threat narrative that that they're bringing crime into the area that they're um, that they're changing the sort of tone and tenor of of the community. And so it's some, reflective of presidential politics because very much. the president of the United States MS thirteen is terrible gang. Mm-hmm. It's not the foremost and national it, and, security and it, threat. And it's actually a gang. There right. actually is MS. But it's not the foremost national security yes. threat to the United States. Yes. But um, this is this is the way the narrative is developed. Right. And some and some people have had actual experience. A car has been stolen. Um, you know, something happened and, and, and a business had to close because, you know, there was actually drug trafficking on a corner and that, that had a, a distinct impact on right. his business. Um, but in some cases, you know, Long Gazel talks about this Latino threat narrative and, and it's interesting. I saw that in the interviews that I did where people are talking about this fear of crime in the abstract mm. and, and the stories are, are strikingly similar. You know, the question, did, did everyone see a Latino family using food stamps to buy seafood? Has everyone actually seen this or, or does that sort of move forward on the weight of its own? You know, it becomes anaerobic. It doesn't even need oxygen. It just is this kind of rumor that, that, that permeates the community. Did everybody actually see that same thing happen or is it just repeated as actual fact then and embraced by people? Right. And so this, this, this crime narrative – has a big impact on, you know, on the way people respond to this. When you spend time talking to people, though, there is there's this other thing that happens that, that you know, that, that they talk about and it's – and people are quick to attach bias to it. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. You know, if you have traditions that you, that you hold on to, that you enjoy, yeah. and those traditions change. 
you know, you're used to going downtown and seeing certain kinds of restaurants. You're used to going to the festivals that they have in a community and eating certain kinds of food. You're used to the sort of cultural cues that provide you with comfort and that um, affirm your sort of ethnic pride or your, you know, who you are as a person. And that changes. And someone else gets to see the things that affirm their ethnic pride. And and that doesn't always feel good. Do you have sympathy for people who don't feel good when they see that? Um, you know, it's, it's, I, as in the work that I do, I, I have to take a somewhat neutral position so I can, so I can listen to people. I create a neutral space where they can share their story. Um, sympathy is an interesting word because I don't, I don't, I don't have sympathy for bias. What about understanding? Do you understand, do you understand this in the framework of, of a generalized human resistance or fear of change? I am interested in the roots of bias. And sometimes if you can examine the roots of bias, you can, you can start to attack it. You can pull it apart. Um, You know, you don't, you don't ask a, I'm not trying to, I'm going to stop myself because I almost said, you know, you don't, I don't want to compare myself to a doctor who deals with something like cancer or, or, you know, heart failure or something Mm -hmm. like that. But in order to understand the body, you have to, understand the disease that is attacking the body. As journalists, we look at the body politic. We try to understand America and try to understand right. you know, the people who live and make up this country. And right. so you have to understand the the dark forces and, and, you know, the social diseases that take root in the body politic. And you have to be able to um, understand them. And it's hard. You know, it means that you look you look something in the eye that you might personally disdain. It means that you look something in the eye that sometimes you recognize, you know, and but in order to understand it, you have to be willing in order to understand something that is so deeply embedded and so complex as race and bias and prejudice and difference. And all those aren't the same thing. Uh, You know, I'm careful about that. Difference is not the same as bias. You know, racism is not the same as as um Diversity. They're all they're all sort of I, I guess manifest saying, in different ways. I guess what I'm asking is, do you see some of the people that you interview who say these things that a lot of people might find objectionable? Do you look at them as people who are generically fearful of change um, and this fear expresses itself? Because the thing that's changing is the ethnic makeup of their neighborhood. It expresses themselves. It's one of the things that changes. So the other thing about this, and I'm sorry to, to interrupt no, you because I, I, I just think it would, might inform the, the way that you pose the question. The other thing that I this broadly – is what journalists do to each other. Well, we, we shape it's, each it's other's actually questions. what we do. What we do, <laughs> you know, we do to people. When we're not in front of microphones <laughs> is what the two of, two of us do also. True. But you know, it, it's never just race. Mm. It's never just race. It's it's also and you know and I'm I'm not sliding to his own where you know you give people a pass because they're feeling some sort of economic fragility or economic anxiety yet economics are part of this sure um, technology is part of this you know that that people are when they're responding to change they're responding to demographic change yes but they're also responding to a world where they don't feel like digital nativists well your broader theme in this piece and a lot of your work is those who are left behind. And what you're saying, I think, is that there are some people who legitimately feel left behind, that the America of the 21st century mm-hmm. is doesn't care about them, which, by the way, is a feeling that African-Americans and maybe Latinos and other groups have often and often felt for, for long periods of time that America and you doesn't adjust. care about them. And, and, you know, and you adjust. I mean, I, I'm, you know, for those who are listening, you may not know, but I'm African-American. Um, 
you know, you, I had you no just, idea. you assume that you're always walking uphill. I mean, that, that's, that's the, the you know, that's the assumption that's is that you're always walking uphill and that you're facing a headwind of some sort and that you get up before you go to bed. And, you know, I, the stories that you hear and, you know, you've heard me say that my mother would say to me, did Harriet get tired as an Harriet Tubman? Like, just, you know, keep working steady on the grind. And what did you say, by the way, when your mother said, did Harriet ever get tired? You don't say anything. It's Have you met my mother? <laughs> no. Could you just, couldn't you just say, I'm sure, in fact, Harriet Tubman every so often got tired. No. I, I learned early on, my parents are postal workers, and, and there was the line that you get, you know, there are starving children in Africa or China or something. And I said, you work at the post office, send it back to them. And that was the last time I ever spoke back to to my family. But, um, but Jeff, the the idea that you have to push against some force is is part of minority culture in many ways. Mm-hmm. And yet the lore is that it's supposed to be part of American culture, right? That, you know, the plow that broke the plains, you know, coming to a country, building a country, you know, leaning against great difficulty. But that's something that um, I think accrues in a, in, a, in a particular way to people who are part of minority culture and face laws and customs and, and a reality that is uh, – that means that they're not necessarily on a level playing field. And the fears that people have about this changing America are also interesting and surreal because on one hand, people are afraid of being left behind. Mm-hmm. And yet the statistics don't bear that out. You know, this, I mean, we saw reporting on the front page of the New York Times in a graphic that I don't think I can ever forget now in the sorting, you know, in the way that you saw this sort of sorting system that happens for African-Americans, particularly African-American males, women, but particularly African-American males, that there's this level of downward mobility that they will face no matter what station to it in, that they're born pushing. to. Something is pushing down on them. So even um, African-American males who were born to relative affluence – have a much greater propensity toward moving downward economically such that they will find themselves in a sort of lower economic strata strata that is either you know living in poverty or just above it by the time that they leave this earth. There are all kinds of statistics and work that's done by people like Derek Hamilton and Sandy Darity that show that access to capital, you know, is an important issue, that home values are an important issue. Ta-Nehisi Coates on the pages of your magazine has written beautifully about this that show that a black family with a high degree of education, good credit scores, money in the bank, will have access to much more onerous terms in terms of the credit or in terms of borrowing than a white family with a high school degree and with much less, you know, resources, much assets that, that don't match, you know, what the black family brings to the table. So, there, you know, these headwinds um, are, are real. And the fear that people feel, that's real also. I mean, one of the things that we know in politics, for instance, is that politics is about people's perceived needs. You know, it may not be their real needs. It's their perceived needs and you have to react to them. And so when you ask the question, do I have sympathy? Sympathy may not be the right word. I have great curiosity. And sometimes I feel that as journalists, that's our secret weapon is trying to understand the forces that are at work that lead to these fears, these needs, these you know, reactions um, that that sometimes don't match the reality that um, right. that we see all around us. It's a secret weapon, but curiosity in and of itself is, is is necessary, but not sufficient. And what I what I mean by that is, at the end of the day, I'm trying to. And you mentioned Tanahasi; he did this in an article for us recently, trying to grapple with the roots of Trumpism, for instance, and sort of uh, trying to understand 
what role racism plays in that. And as he points out and others point out, yeah, you know, you're talking about a lot of people who are in the left behind parts of America who have a lot of resentments based on a whole bunch of things. But Donald Trump won the votes of well-off white people, Mm -hmm. engaged white people, educated white people. Uh, And so... Who would not see themselves as racist? Well, very few people see themselves as racist. The Charlottesville crowd saw themselves as racist, some of them, but very few people see themselves as racist. But are willing to support someone who says things that, in in some cases, that they admit are racist, but they don't see themselves as racist. And there's an a la carte nature to setting something aside. I support his economic plan. I don't much like what he says about brown people, but I support his economic plan. So I'm willing to set that aside. Right, right. So, so the question, and, I, and I'm saying that not by excuse, by explanation. No, and no, no, no. But, but, but this comes to this point where maybe curiosity isn't enough, mm-hmm. which is to say there there needs to be a diagnosis and eventually um, a cure. Mm-hmm. And so, my question for you is, what's the what's the cure for where we are? Because we're certainly not in a good place on issues of race relations, equality, the battle against racism. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that. I'm, I'm careful to talk about a cure for something because I think that. Or what's that the what's the way to make it better? Forget the word. Well, cure, I think I think dramatic. journalism is a big part of that. I think holding a, a mirror and a window up to society. I mean, the the you know the person who um, is able to dismiss something that that they that they deem is racist. You know, helping them understand what that leads to. You know, helping them understand that the America that 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 you wind up with. When you're willing to dismiss those kinds of things, I think part of the the curative might involve, and it, it sounds perhaps Pollyannish, but reaching outside of your comfort zone to understand life as lived by somebody else. Part of it requires understanding a big part of it, and this is a piece that we seem never to get right, is understanding our history. I mean, we don't understand where we have come from as a country. We don't understand the vestiges of slavery. We barely understand what slavery meant in America, how how it manifested itself in everyday life. You know, most people really don't have a strong understanding of how this nation was formed and the the benefits that certain classes of people had and certain classes of people didn't. And And if you don't understand that, Perhaps you don't understand why you have certain advantages and, you know, why privilege is accrued to one class or another or why some people, if they look deep into their hearts, still hold lower expectations for certain classes of people. You know, some people don't don't actually believe why leadership looks a certain way, Uh why authority – in the minds of many people, still looks a certain way. Why people have certain expectations about the behavior or the intent of people of color, particularly black men. Uh-huh. You know, why are we so afraid of black men? You know, where, it, it, that, that didn't just happen. There's a certain amount of social engineering and media manipulation and modeling around a narrative of the scary black man or the angry black female or the Latino threat. Or, you know, there's all kinds of of examples of this that have been molded and shaped. They did not happen naturally. You know, this is not something that just happened by some sort of natural decree. This is this is something that happened through socialization over a long period of time. 
talking about history and the way we understand our own history in this country, some of the people you've talked to, both through reporting stories like this one and the race card project, it put you in touch with a lot of diverse kind of thinking. Tell the story of America and its and its relationship to its African-American citizens, or first it's non-citizens and then citizens, um, the way – I'm going to use a crude term and you, you fix it uh, – the way one of your more racist white interlocutors might tell that, or not even racist, but one of those people you describe as, as uh, the kind of Trump voter who overlooks certain things, doesn't think of himself as racist, certainly, uh, but but – but found it okay to vote for Donald Trump for a set of other reasons. How do they understand that? Because I think there's a clue embedded in something you said, that that we're never going to get to where we need to be until we actually grapple with the reality of certain fa- certain aspects of the way this country was created and, and built. So how do they tell that story? I can answer the question, but I'd have to remove the Trump nature of it because I don't ask people who they voted for. Sometimes Take they will Trump. say sometimes they will say it in the course of telling their backstory, but that's not one of the questions we ask, so that's not something I can speak to. But for people who do, you know, set aside history or don't fully understand history, one of the things I learn is how 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 often people don't understand history. Mm-hmm. That they think of slavery as ancient history, as in you know, not three generations ago, four generations ago, but something that, made everything you fine. know, that, that, that it was a long time ago and that at the end of slavery, that it was the end of the problem. And that to the extent that slavery existed in America, that they don't, they think that slaves were well taken care of. You know, they there were can't fed be a lot of people announced. who think that. There are a lot of people who think that. You, they're more than you might fully understand. Um, and, and, and even if they don't think <laughs> that they were well taken care of, they don't understand how horrible the conditions of slavery were. They don't understand that families were ripped apart. They don't – I mean to the extent that we understand it, it's probably through popular culture. Right. You know, we learn a little bit in textbooks. We learn a little bit in the pages of magazines like yours. But I think films like 12 Years a Slave, you know, do a lot more to educate people about the conditions of slave. you know, that, that those who were enslaved lived under than what most people actually learn in um, in the years that they spend in, in American schools or even private schools or even if they went to college, even if they have master's degrees, they might not fully understand, you know, what that means. And the importance of that is then understanding – that if you were not allowed to own property, if you were not allowed to get an education, if you were not allowed to fully matriculate in society, if you came back and you, you, you fought for your country and you could not take advantage of the GI Bill. I mean the GI Bill was added rocket fuel to the American middle class. But there's a whole category of Americans mm-hmm. who were black and brown, Filipino, Mexican, you know, who were not able to fully take advantage of that. We're not able to go to school. We're not able to buy homes with those GI loans. Then you understand the owner's nature of this. When you understand that for neighborhoods, if a black family moved in, your FHA rating sunk just by having that family in the neighborhood. Now, if you lived in that neighborhood, you might you might actually like the idea of integration, but you also like the idea that your your nest egg is tied up in your home. So then you face a conundrum. Do I support integration or do I actually support the black family that moved in and is dropping my my home, the value of my home, which my retirement, my kids' education and everything is wrapped up in that. And suddenly, you know, that person faces a, 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 a quandary, a conundrum. I'm not sure that a lot of people really understand those issues. And when you are honest about those kinds of issues, you have a better understanding of, of, of America and, and the America that we see today. And so 
as journalists, we tell the first draft of history, but I increasingly see the importance of also paying attention to the what we see in the rearview mirror, you know, and, and putting that in context and helping us understand how it has an impact on the policies that we see today, on the inequality gap that is so wide in America, on access to opportunity. All of this is not something and 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 the the institutions that we have and the inequalities that we see in the institutions that they have, that didn't just happen by osmosis. It happened because of decisions that were made over time and policies that were developed over time and all of it based on a foundation of inequality that was at the root of the founding of our great nation. Michelle Norris, thank you very much for being with me. You're welcome. Thank you all for listening to The Atlantic Interview. This episode was produced by Kevin Townsend with production support from Matt Thompson, Kim Lau, and Catherine Wells. If you like the show, give us a rating. And by that, I mean a positive rating. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.